we're going to have a bit of a history lesson today. And I don't know if that makes you groan or whether you, you're, you're on the edge of your seat with excitement. <clears throat> um, you know, I've, I've known for a number of uh, weeks, maybe even months, that uh, this Sunday was heading our way. And this Sunday is, is, uh, is the Reformation Sunday, which means it's the 500th anniversary of this monk uh, slash preacher who nailed up these uh, 95 statements onto the door of his local church. And the church has never been the same since. Or more really, actually, the church has um, maybe been truer to what it was supposed to be in the first place, uh, you know, as a result of this one guy. And so as we're hearing this, what I don't want us to do is to, is to think, well, that's nice. That's, that's, that's nice news. That's nice information. What I want instead is for us to think, if the Lord could use someone like Martin Luther, who was not a perfect individual, he was a, he was a work in progress. You know, he, he, he struggled with numerous things throughout his life. Um, but still, the Lord had him in the right place at the right time, and he used him in a powerful way. And so what I want you to be thinking, as you're listening to the story of Martin Luther, is why does God have you where you are? That's, that's really what I want you to be thinking about. So my name's Dan, and I'm, uh, I'm the pastor here. And uh, yeah, so if you want to ask me any other questions, then please feel free afterwards. And uh, it's exciting saying that. I get excited about introducing myself because it means there are people here who I don't yet know. And that's a really exciting thing because if it was just the same faces here week in, week out, 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 that would be okay, but it would mean that we're not necessarily growing. And what I want us as part of our No Grow Show focus is that we are a church who grows. So, so we know Jesus. This is what Cornerstone is all about, is that we're, we're people that know Jesus, that we're people who are growing in him, and we're people who are showing him to others. So numbers aren't everything, and I hope we never get fixated on numbers, um, but numbers are an indication that growth is happening. So uh, that's why I get uh, happy about introducing myself. And, and it's also cool, you know, having folks like uh, Mark in the church. Where is Mark? Are you, are you here? Yeah, Mark's here. So here's, you know, here's just an example of someone who's, who's using his gifts and his talents to improve our experience on a Sunday morning. And uh, he's, he's, he's really done an excellent job. And Mark and, and Lee actually hosted our youth party last week. It was glow in the dark. It was crazy. It was, uh, it was tons of fun. And they put lots of work and lots uh, to welcome our teens over at their house. And we had, and we had a good number. And we had a good time. So uh, it's, it's exciting stuff. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that uh, we would see this as more than a history lesson, Lord, but that we would engage our minds and our brains and our hearts and that uh, you, would, you, would, you would transform us. Lord, I pray that we would get encouraged by Martin Luther. Lord, that, uh, Lord, that you may use us actually, maybe as a springboard, to uh, help us long to learn more, Lord, because as we read what you have been doing throughout church history, um, we resist... Um, just thinking that the latest and the greatest is right, Lord. And uh, Lord, and we actually see how you've been working with uh, folks through us, whether it's in the 10 hundreds or the 1500s, 
or uh, now, Lord. Lord, I pray that uh, we would walk out of here encouraged in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Martin Luther was born on November the 10th, 1483, which means that Luther would have been nine years old when Columbus sailed the oceans blue, which is kind of cool to think that these people existed on the earth at the same time. He was born to Hans and Margaret Luda in Mansfield, and uh, they were a decidedly happy and good-looking couple, as you can see. And uh, Hans was a hard worker working in the copper mines, uh, but then he earned enough money to purchase his own. Margaret was well-educated and was well-connected in society, and education for this family was very important. It was this focus on education and on Margaret's societal connections that would be important for Luther being in the right place so that God could use him later. However, his parents were tough. On him. One time his mother struck him so hard for stealing a nut that she drew blood. And so I do wonder whether this harsh upbringing maybe colored his impression of God that he struggled with for many years. In 1498, age 15, Luther moved to Eisenach where he studied for three years. Remember, he was 15 years old, and this season in his life awoke a love for learning and for using his mind under the teaching of a guy called Vigan Geldenupf. He, and he studied Virgil, he studied Aesop's fables in this time, and upon the recommendation of his teacher, Vigan Geldenupf, and the headmaster, he was sent to university at Erfurt. Now, Erfurt was known as Little Rome because 1,000 of its 20,000 residents, so 1,20th of the whole, whole population of Erfurt, were part of some religious order or another. So it was known as Little Rome. And Erfurt is where Luther would come into his own as a scholar. He completed his, his bachelor degree in just one year, and age 19, in 1502, Luther graduated and three years later, he received his master's degree. At Erfurt, Luther spent two years um, really debating different aspects of Aristotle's thoughts, which meant he became used to using logic and rhetoric to really get in, into debates in the public setting, which, once again, we can see how God was setting him up for what he was calling him to later on. Luther was not top of the class, but he worked hard, and he he graduated as a well-trained academic in 1505. His father was proud and referred to him as Master Martin. And upon graduating, his father wanted him to pursue law, and Luther applied to study law. Luther's family could see his future unfolding as they wished, and they could see that he was destined to a lucrative legal job, perhaps in the pay of a nobleman, but it would not be long before Luther in, um, encountered a crisis moment that would change his life forever. Six months later, 
in July. Luther was traveling to see his parents, and he could see a storm beginning to brew. Near, near the village of Stoffenheim, Martin was caught in the middle of a tremendous thunderstorm. And during this thunderstorm, an enormous lightning strike threw him down to the ground, where in desperation, he cried, help me, Saint Anne, I will become a monk. I don't know if you've ever had a lightning storm that's led you to utter something like that, but that was on the top of his mind. Uh, help me, Saint Anne, I will become a monk. And uh, Martin would later uh, regularly reference this moment as a really key turning point in his moment, because it was at this moment that he turned his back on pursuing a career as a lawyer and instead becoming a monk. He made a vow, and as a sign of his integrity, which again, later we see, he was intent on fulfilling it. And we can think that maybe at this moment, Martin was brought, to fa- was brought face-to-face with the God of eternity and understood that he was not right with God. And because the whole concept of salvation by faith had been lost in the church, Martin did the next best thing. He became a monk. His father, Hans, of course, was not very happy at all. Remember, Martin's life had been planned out. And so he tried to reason with his son to come to a different interpretation of what happened at this moment. But Luther was resolved. His mind was made up. And he was going to take on the cowl and the tonsure, which is the monk, the cool monk hairdo. I don't know if you've seen it. So, you know, they didn't do a comb over. They just intentionally... Made that hole in the middle. So that's called a tonsure. Tonsure, if you're Canadian. There's a couple of things to note here. Is that firstly, God can use profound moments in our life to change our direction forever. Because there were other people in that lightning storm. Right? And yet God used this lightning storm to redirect Martin Luther onto the journey that he had for him. Uh, He had it planned out for him. So it's clear to see that God can use our circumstances in our lives to set us on a new path that he has. And for Martin's family, he was destined for a comfortable life in law. Maybe even helping his parents out as they grew old. But just as God called Wendy and I onto a ship for four years, so God has the power and the authority to redirect your life. And the question is, are you willing to obey. Selling everything and moving literally across the other side of the world to join a ship in the Philippines did not make career advancing sense for me. Yet we were clear that God was calling us away from Cornerstone at that moment in time, calling us away from my good job as an assistant pastor, and yet I would never doubt that God had his hand in this. So what is God calling you to? Are you doing what you're supposed to because God has called you to it? Or are you doing what you're doing because it's expected of you? Are you living your life intentionally, listening to God? Or are you listening, uh, living your life on autopilot? So within the span of 14 days, maybe 15 days, Luther prepared for his life as a monk. He returned his expensive books, and he had a farewell meal with his friends. Because becoming a monk meant that you left behind your worldly goods and your worldly relationships. And at the door of the Augustinian hermits in Erfurt, Martin told his friends, you see me today and never again. 
Anthony Salvaggio points out a number of ironies here. The irony that, that the Protestant Reformation can be traced back to a prayer to a canonized saint, St. Anne, and a vow to become a Roman, Roman Catholic monk. That's where the Protestant Reformation can be traced back to. And the, and, the, and the irony that the man who would eventually change the course of the world and become a renowned public figure had at this time determined to cut himself off from the world by choosing to live a solitary, private, and isolated life in a monastery settled in the walled, walled city of Erfurt. A few minutes ago, I mentioned that one-twentieth of all of Erfurt were involved in some religious order or another. And so Luther had lots of options at this point. He could have chosen the Franciscans or the Dominicans or the Benedictines, but he chose the order of Augustine, most likely because the scholarly nature of this order appealed to him. He loved studying, but regardless of the reason why, God led him in this way. And so Martin Luther entered into a strict and regimented life, a life of uncomfortable clothes, a life of not enough food, and a life of hard labor. Luther had found his calling, and he was a model monk. Luther, Luther later not, noted that if holiness could have secured a man's salvation, then he would have earned his reward during this time as a monk. Then on April the 4th, 1507, Martin was ordained as a priest. And this was a particular honor because while monks were well, well respected in the community, uh, a monk priest had a special calling and a special responsibility, the ability to administer the sacrament of Holy Communion. Now, as a priest, Luther would now be able to utter these words in Latin, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. And he would be able to say, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. So unlike here at Cornerstone, where, um, where Holy Communion is somewhat of a regular occurrence, for, for a Catholic, communion was an incredibly mysterious, somber moment. You see, what Martin believed and, and, and what Catholics uh, believed happened at that moment of uttering these words, hoc est corpus meum, is that the bread and the wine in Martin's hands actually became the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's called transubstantiation, and it was a huge deal. And so for Martin to administer communion was kind of like him entering into the courts of heaven himself. But as Luther prepared to administer his first communion, as he studied the text and memorized these words, he was overcome by a profound sense of unworthiness. Add into this the fact that his father was coming to watch him do his first Holy Communion. And so with his father watching and his heavenly father watching, Luther became so anxious that he nearly dropped the bread and the cup. Remember that this, in his mind, was the actual body and the blood of Christ. He nearly dropped it, but he didn't. In the winter of 1508, Luther was noticed by Vicar General Johann von Staupitz, one of his superiors, and was invited to the role of substitute professor of moral philosophy at the University of Wittenberg. Now, uh, Wittenberg was known for its strong beer, 
and the university was not viewed very, very well by the academic world. And so Luther was kind of brought in to, um, to change us, to, to maybe give it more of a standing. And so in 1509, Luther started working on his doctorate. He switched from studying philosophy to studying scripture, and Martin was very excited about this. Remember in, the, in these days that no one could read the Bible with the exception of the parish priests. And so Staupitz, or sorry, so Staupitz, that the man who brought him to, to this town became a spiritual father to Luther. He also became the one who received Luther's confessions. Now, these monks, you have to remember this. It's a bit like on the ship, right? We had lots of rules, and, and so you weren't really able to really do a lot that was really, really bad. And so it was even worse in the monastery, you know. There was so much, so many limits on them that they couldn't really do any big sins in our eyes. And so whoever was receiving the confession would probe deep into their innermost thoughts. And some of Martin's confessions lasted for six hours. And... Staupitz got a little bit concerned about Martin's level of confession, and he once even observed that Martin confessed every time he farted. And this, and this deep introspection gave rise in Martin to this deep self-doubt and anxiety. He longed to know that he could be sure of his salvation. And it was at this moment when he was wrestling with a lot, a lot of faith things that Staupitz asked Martin if he could go to Rome to bring resolution to a conflict between two factions of monks. And so Martin made his way to Rome over the Alps, traveling from Germany to Italy. It was a tough journey. And upon entering Rome, Martin discovered that conditions were not very good. There was a lot of filth, both on the street and morally. And, and, and remember, Rome was the holy city. And from afar, it looked amazing. But as he got closer, he could see how filthy it was. Um, there were many, many prostitutes. Uh, there were people urinating in public. They'd throw their chamber pots out of the, out of the top window, you know, onto the street. It was just a filthy city. And, uh, and worst of all is that the local priests were corrupt, and they actually mocked Martin for his high standards. And so Martin, as uh, one of the things that he did in Rome is that he scaled the steps of Scala Santa on his knees. knees. And Scala Santa means holy steps, and so he scaled these on his knees because, um, because what he believed in doing this is that scaling these steps on his knees, he could release some of his loved ones maybe from purgatory. And at the top of these steps, Martin remembered later thinking this, this, this thought as he was watching all of these people on their knees climbing up these steps, he asked this question, who knows whether this could be really true? Who knows whether this is really true? And thus began Martin's search for certainty regarding how we relate to God. He was seeking truth. He was seeking an authority that he could trust. So let's pause a moment. How many of us can relate to Martin Luther at this moment, right at the top of the steps, saying, 
How can we know if this is really true? How many of us have longed for assurance, for certainty, to know that the message of the gospel, in our case, is actually true and not some nice little fable that we have to make us feel good? Let me encourage you that just as, Mar- that just as God heard Martin's pleading and searching, so he hears yours. May Martin Luther be an example of someone who says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. And in that, there's a lot of room for wrestling and for doubt and for questions. There's a lot of room. And God's never shocked. He never throws up his hand saying, what kind of a Christian are you? He enters into these searching times with us just as he did with Martin. And maybe this is an encouraging scripture as well. You will seek me and find me when you seek with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So whether you're someone who's a Christian who's maybe searching and maybe has doubts or questions or you're someone who has no faith at this moment in time is that God says that if you seek him with all your heart, you will be found by him. You will find him. So like Martin Luther, if you seek, God, with all your heart, I encourage you to make it your number one, number one priority. Don't give up. So after Rome, Martin arrived back to Erfurt from his, uh, uh, on, in April 1511. It was a long journey. It took, it took a few weeks for him to go travel from Rome back to Erfurt. And his mission to resolve this dispute was a failure. And so he felt this failure weighing on him along with his growing skepticism. 18 months later, in October 1512, Martin was informed by his spiritual father, Staupitz, that he would become a doctor and would go to, over to Wittenberg to train the monks there. He would be focusing on theology and preaching. Now, this town was an unsophisticated frontier town, but it, had, but it did have a young university which was under the patronage of a guy called Frederick the Wise of Saxony. And he wanted to turn this town into a a center of learning. He wanted to raise it in the estimation of the world. And he wanted to see this university succeed, which is why they brought in Martin. And so Martin worked as hard as a professor as he had as a monk. And he mastered Greek and Hebrew so that he could teach his students even more effectively. He exhausted himself in the midst of this and nearly collapsed. Now, I have a question for you. If you're anything like me, you're like, how do I make 15 minutes to spend time with the Lord in the morning. Well, here's a guy that, that mastered Greek and Hebrew in the midst of all of this. I mean, it's just incredible. As Luther taught his students, he, he made use of a new invention. Once again, here's the sovereignty of God housed in, the town, housed in this town by, made by this guy called Gutenberg. It was a printing press. And as Luther studied the scriptures to teach the students, he began to see God as a terrifying and a terrible judge. And he felt the weight, once again, that weight lying on him. He felt the weight of God's judgment weighing on his shoulders. He knew that God demanded righteousness, and Luther knew that he did not have that righteousness in him. Remember, this is the guy who would confess for six hours straight 
In fact, Martin grew to hate God's righteousness. He really despised it because he knew that he could never be right with, with God. And Martin expressed it like this. As if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through eternal sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Ten Commandments, without God having, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospels threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. And so for him, you know, the gospel, it was a, it was a wicked thing. It was a tough thing. It was a thing that was weighing on him. Now, during his time... Uh, here, Martin lectured through Psalms and Romans and, and through, through Galatians. And while he was meditating on Paul's letter to the Romans, he came across this phrase in Romans 1 verse 17, which says, the just shall live by faith, or the righteous shall live by faith. Now, how many times have you read a verse and you've read it a million times, you read it and suddenly it comes to life? Well, that's what happened here. He spent day and night focusing on this one phrase, mulling it over in his mind. And it was at the end of this process of, of uh, meditating on Romans 1.17 that the light bulb went on. Or maybe more accurately, we can say that the sun rose in Martin Luther's life. Because what he understood from Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the just shall live by faith, is this. That God's justice is upheld and fulfilled when he justifies his people through faith. For Luther, this one realization became the lens through which he looked at all of scripture. It transformed everything. This righteous God that Luther hated became this righteous God that Luther loved. He put it like this. Therefore, or, or thereupon, I felt my, myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors in, into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. Because what he realized is that God was both the just and the justifier. And that God's God's justice, God's righteousness could now be received as a gift. Luther explained this, that, that, um, that, that God provides for us what he commands of us. Okay, that, that's a really important understanding, that God provides for us what he commands of us. Righteousness was no longer something that Luther could earn. It was now a gift that he could receive through faith, which is why he... he, he he, he hinged, he latched onto this, the just shall live by faith. And I'm sure if this chorus had been around in the 1500s, Luther would have sure sung it, this, 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 this uh, chorus to this hymn that goes, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. Luther's life had changed changed forever. He was free. His conscience was free. His mind was free. He saw God as a God of mercy who provided what he commanded. Everything was changed. But of course, like anyone who has been won over by the message of the gospel, this was not a message that he could keep to himself. In the classroom and in the pulpit, Luther started to preach this wonderful news that the righteous shall live by faith, Romans 1.17, that the just shall live by faith. And remember that in these times, the only person who could read the Bible 
was the parish priest. So Luther had this wonderful responsibility now to tell people in his parish the good news. And whoever was listening to him heard this message that that we can never be justified with God through our external works. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. But this message was to cause him huge trouble. You see, the church at that time taught that if you sin, in those days, the, you know, there was no Methodist church or there was no Pentecostals. There, there, was no, you know, there wasn't any Protestants. You know, the only church was the, was the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And, and, and this church taught that if you sinned on earth, you would be punished in purgatory, which is kind of like a holding place where, where people were purified before going into heaven. And the church taught that if you bought an indulgence, kind of like a, a get-out-of-free uh, get card in Monopoly, then your time at purgatory would be shortened or even wiped out. You could either buy indulgences for yourself or you could buy indulgences for your dead relatives, which would earn them a reduced sentence. Now, here's the thing, is that you had to prove that you were sincere in, with this indulgence. And the only way that you could prove that you were sincere in this indulgence is that there would be some kind of a, a financial transaction that would take place. You'd hand over money, they would hand you this, this, this piece of paper. So it was your money for the freedom of your dead relative. Now, Luther's parish was licensed to sell indulgences, as well as housing a huge collection of holy relics. And one inventory listed, that, listed his local parish's collection of relics at over 20,000, including a tooth of St. Jerome and, the gold, and some gold from the wise men from Jesus' birth. Okay? So, so, so folks were told that if they viewed the relics on a specific day and made a corresponding, maybe, donation, then they could receive reductions in their purgatory sentence by up to two million years. They'd worked out how this, you know, how this all worked, you know. This equals that. And as you can expect, Luther spoke up which led to a standoff between him and the Pope. You see, Pope Leo X wanted to rebuild the glory of the Roman Empire but to, and, and to have this glory manifest in the Roman Church. And he, he wanted to have the same standing and power as the kings and queens of the countries, but he lacked funds, which meant that selling indulgences led to significant revenue for him. And his door-to-door salesman was a guy called Johann Tetzel, and uh, Pope Leo X actually involved, in, invented a thing called the plenary indulgence, which could wipe out someone's purgatory sentence altogether. And so this man, Johann Tetzel, would ride into town full of pomp and circumstance, and he would appeal to people's emotions regarding the fate and the state of their loved ones who were dead and who were in, in purgatory. He even had a little jingle that he would say, he would say this, as soon as the, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So uh, maybe that was the first ever advert jingle. And of course, the money started flowing in from all these people who could, many of them could hardly feed themselves. And when I think of Johann Tetzel, I can't help but think of the sheriff of Nottingham. 
in Disney's Robin Hood, a nasty character. Now, of course, Luther was not going to stand by and let this kind of thing happen. And so maybe today he would have written a letter to the, ed to the editor or written a scathing post on Facebook. But back then, he used what he had, and he took pen to paper, and he wrote out a document. These were 95 points. And today it's known as the 95 Theses. And he went and he nailed these 95 statements, these 95 Theses, onto the door of, of the castle church there in Wittenberg. Now, Luther is known as, as, the, as the individual that, that gave the Bible to the people of Germany in their own language. And that came later. But at this moment in time, wrote in, uh, Martin wrote these 95 Theses in Latin because this wasn't to create a big uprising in the populace. This was to have a debate and a discussion among the um, leaders of the university. And so he nails them up onto the door because that's what folks did. He wasn't the first who ever did this. This is a, a, a regular thing there in that town. This is how the conversation was started in those days in that town. Now, now because of Gutenberg's printing press... These 95 theses were copied, which could never have happened up until this time, and they were spread throughout the whole of Germany. They went viral. And this, of course, meant that one little monk priest was now against some of the most powerful men and institutions in the world. And these people who had gotten rich by maintaining the status quo. And as Anthony Salvaggio says, Luther wasn't seeking fame or a fight with Rome. He was merely seeking to glorify God and to protect his, his people. His motivations were those of a faithful pastor. Now, M Martin's main concern was that the indulgences encouraged people to place their trust in a piece of paper rather than in the work and the person of, of Jesus Christ, which is why thesis or Thesis 37 reads this. Every true Christian, whether living or dead, has part in all the blessings of Christ and the church, and this is granted him by God, even without letters of pardon. Whereas Thesis 45 said this, that Christians should be taught that he who sees someone needy but looks past him and buys an indulgence instead receives not the Pope's remission but God's wrath. And thus began the Protestant Reformation. So while Martin carried on his life of preaching and teaching in his little local town, he received a summons from Rome, appear within 60 days to answer this charge of heresy or else. And Luther was afraid, but uh, he was given the opportunity not just to travel to Rome, but to recant, which means to step away from or to or to change his, his, his mind. So he was given the, the chance to recant his position in Augsburg in Germany. But if he failed to recant, then he would be dragged off to Rome in chains. Those were the options lying in front of Luther. But of course, in Augsburg, Luther refused this opportunity for him to recant. And so as a result, his, his spiritual father, um, von Staupitz, had him excommunicated from the Augustinian um, monk order. Maybe to save him um, and to say to Rome that we're handling his discipline here. 
but one year after posting these 95 theses, Luther fled Augsburg on an unsaddled horse. He made his way home, exhausted and on the run. Now this man, Frederick the Wise of Saxony, which I mentioned earlier, he was pressured to withdraw his protection of Luther. And in the same time as, as, as um, Frederick being pressured to withdraw his, his support, the Pope issued an edict which said that if anyone spoke out against indulgences, this was, they, they were to be considered as a heretic because it meant questioning the Pope himself. But the good news is that Frederick the Wise pledged to continue shielding this pesky little monk. Now, the University of Wittenberg, it became somewhat of a hotbed of opposition against the Holy Roman Church, largely because of Luther's presence, but also because of two of, of Luther's colleagues, Andreas Karlstad and Philip Melanchthon, and here we can see Andreas Karlstad, who were united with him. So there was these three professors who were standing up against the Holy Roman Church, and they went with Luther to some sort of a debate against one of Luther's primary opponents, who was a guy called Johann Eck at the University of Leipzig. Now, you imagine this, okay? Luther was accompanied by hundreds of armed students, while Eck had 76 armed guards. So tensions were high. This was not a nice little scholarly chat. There was a lot riding on this. And they were focused on one theme, which was, is it the Bible or the Pope who has the final say on issues of theology? Now, this conversation lasted not one hour, not two hours, not three hours, lasted 18 days. So, and at the end of it, as so often happens, Eck and Luther went their own ways, even more entrenched in their positions than they were at the beginning. So Leo X, who's the Pope, remember, he assembled a team of scholars who put together a response to Martin Luther. And it makes for tense and exciting reading if you ever want to look it up on the internet. And the Pope presented himself as the epitome of reasonableness, and he gave Luther an ultimatum. Luther responded by publishing three tracts. And in response to what's known as a papal bull, uh, demanding that Luther's works are burned, Luther burned this piece of paper. So he's saying to the Pope, if you want to bring it, I'm also going to bring it. <laughs> and in response to this, Pope Leo X officially excommunicated Martin Luther from the church. There was no going back. There was no retreat. Now, all these names, I, I want you to be thinking, okay, how is God sovereignly working out his plan? Because along with Frederick the Wise, who was his supporter, Luther also found an ally in the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Emperor called Charles V. Charles was out of favor with the Pope, so he had nothing really to lose. And in Luther, Charles found a way to challenge Pope Leo himself. And if Luther won, then the entire political structure would shift in Europe in favor of Charles and away from Pope Leo 
which would give Charles V much stronger hold over Europe. And so Charles V granted, as the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V granted Luther a hearing and and Charles was able to do this because one of his roles as the Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor was to resolve great, great issues. And so on April, in April 1521, Charles called the Diet of Worms, which is what these issue-resolving assemblies were called. And Luther was summoned, and much as he was unsure of, of Charles's motivations, he went to Worms. Now, whether he would return, Luther did not know, and he was welcomed in Worms by 2,000 people upon his arrival. He was seen as a hero to the folk and the people of, of, of his country. And now, the next day after arriving, he was whisked away to a secret location where he was asked whether he would recant of his writings. If he recanted, it would ease tensions with Rome. Now, at that moment of being asked, Luther did not answer, but he asked for more time. And so he was brought in again, and Luther stood before this, these uh, leaders in the tribunal. Now, the entire hall was silent as they waited, and Luther sweated, and he stuttered as he faced this incredible stress of really deciding what he would do next. Then, in German, which is the language of the people, Luther said this, unless... I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can, I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by, by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Now, Luther was asked to repeat his words in Latin, and he was so exhausted from this emotional stress that he nearly collapsed. He was then led from the room, and Charles V, along with four others in the tri tribunal, they said that Luther was a heretic. But there were two who stood with L Luther, including Frederick the Wise. Charles then issued the Edict of Worms on May the 8th, 1521, which, among other things, said this. We declare that the said Martin Luther is to be considered an estranged member, rotten and cut off from our holy mother church. He is an obstinate, schismatic heretic, and we want him to be considered as such by all of you. In our grow groups this week, Here's a sample of some of the questions which we're going to have fun with. Luther would spend up to six hours confessing his sins. Is it possible to be too honest when confessing our sins to God and others? Why or why not? Here's another one. At the top of the Santa Scala steps, Luther asked, who knows whether this is really true? Have you ever wrestled with questions like this in your faith? How do you deal with or how are you dealing with times of doubt or, or, or of questioning? And, and the third sample question is, imagine if Luther had never realized that the righteous shall live by faith. What would our church look like nowadays if that had never been realized?
Luther's story carries on. There is more intrigue. There is more conflict. There's a revolt. There are sides drawn. And there comes into being the church known as the Protestant church. But I want to leave Luther standing there, standing in front of some of the most powerful people in the world saying, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Here was an ordinary monk who was afflicted with the fear of the judgment of a holy God. He was a man who, who, who studied scripture and who wrestled with it and who rediscovered this key of grace that interprets the whole of scripture. Here is the man who, who found out that where God commands, he provides. Here is a man who was enlightened that the, 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 that the just shall live by faith. And after this awakening, Luther's fate was set. He was someone who had encountered the living Jesus Christ and who wanted nothing more than to bring the message of the cross, the message of, the cra- uh, of grace to the people of Germany and the people of the world in a language that they could understand. He is a man who translated the whole Bible as well as learning Hebrew and Greek, so that people like you and me could encounter God for ourselves and maybe take for granted our Bibles that are on our shelves. Here is a man who set into motion what would, what would be known as the five solas, sola scriptura, scripture alone, that the Bible alone is our highest authority, sola fide, Faith alone. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Sola gratia. Or or grace alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone. There's nothing we can do to earn his favor. Solus Christus. Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. And soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. Our lives are to be lived for his glory alone. And this last phrase... Soli Deo Gloria, marked Luther's life from start to finish, Soli Deo Gloria. This is how he lived, and it cost him everything. But sometimes we treat this message of the gospel like so lightweight and so ordinary, but this is etched in the sacrifice of people like Martin Luther, both men and women. So what was the Reformation? It was God's gracious reminder to a world that had maybe forgotten what he had already clearly spoken. And what was his means of, uh, of communication? A book that lay inaccessible to everyone except for the religious elite. And who was Martin Luther? He was the one who reopened this book for the entire continent of Europe by translating it into German and using what the, the latest technological advances, the printing press, to make sure it got out there. Your neighbors may never have heard of Martin Luther, but they know you. They may never have heard of the Gutenberg printing press, but they have you living next to them. They have you going to work with them. So would you hand them a Bible and show them this gospel that is written on your heart? God had Martin Luther in Germany, just as he has where you are for a reason. God's written word changed the world and it can do the same with your next door neighbor in your street in your workplace 
Oh, and were you aware that Martin Luther's name wasn't always Martin Luther? He was born as Martin Luther. And the reason he changed his name is because Luther, or Luther, sounds very similar to the word in Greek for freedom. So he wanted his name to be reminiscent of this word freedom. And I think that these words of Jesus in John 8, 32, were spoken to Martin Luther and to people like him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In 500 years, nothing has changed. The need is the same. We have people in our community who do not know what is written in the Bible. They just have what they may have understood, their, their folk religion. But the message of the gospel is the same. The need is the same, and the gospel is the same. And the freedom that we, that we have in Jesus is the same. And your word, your, your, your work, and your home, and your neighborhood, they don't need a Martin Luther. They need you. And God has sovereignly led your life to where you are right now, just as he sovereignly led Martin's life to where he was for a purpose and a reason. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray.